Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford, Woking and Aldershot in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. So we're coming to week four of our Be Attitude series, and hopefully at this point you have got it that these aren't attitudes, it's not like short for beautiful attitudes, that Be Attitudes comes from the Latin word for blessed, and so this is Jesus almost saying like a salutation, like congratulations, be happy if you embody some of these things that he is going to talk about. And a couple of weeks ago, Peter used a really helpful illustration of Edgar Mueller, the 3D street graffiti artist. And um, here's one of his works, if you flick through to the first picture. And so he draws these amazing... Let's see if we get an audible gasp for this one. Okay, everybody, and go. (gasps) Yeah, it was forced, but I'll take it. And Peter made a really helpful point that the only way that you get the full impact of these pictures is that you approach them from the right perspective. And so today what we're going to be doing is approaching the Beatitudes, making sure hopefully that we've got the right perspective. One biblical scholar really helpfully breaks the Beatitudes into two sets of four. Interestingly, in Matthew's Gospel, when Matthew wrote his Gospel in the original Greek, Both sets of four have the exact same number of words in the Greek. So it's almost like he's dividing these Beatitudes into two sets. And one way to look at them would be one to four, Beatitude one to four that we're finishing off today are blessed are those who have felt crushed by the world. The poor in spirit, the mourn, those who mourn, those who are meek those who hunger and thirst. And then Beatitudes 5 to 8 that we're going to be going on to are blessed are those who act on behalf of the crushed and broken of the world. And so let us, as it were, walk up to the Beatitudes in the right way, down the right road, looking uh, as we should to make sure we get the full impact of what Jesus is saying. So Matthew 5 comes right after Matthew 4. Ah, We're doing well. If you have a Bible or a phone there, I want you to see this. Why don't you go to Matthew 4? Let's see what's down the road from Matthew 5. Okay, and we're going to read backwards. Matthew 4.25, what do we find out? Because obviously Matthew didn't break these. We're really guilty of breaking up Matthew 4 and Matthew 5, kind of pulling them apart. But obviously when Matthew wrote it, he intended them to be read together. They follow on from one another. And so Matthew 4.25, what do we read? Large crowds came to Jesus. And they're from Galilee, from Decapolis, from Jerusalem, and Judea, and the region, all over the place. So this is a large crowd, and it's multi-ethnic, okay? It's coming to Jesus. Now, what does Matthew 4.24, the verse before, tell us about these crowds? Well, news about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering with severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. So what's the makeup of these crowds? It's the oppressed and the possessed. It's the ill and the lame and the blind. That is the makeup of the people who is being brought to Jesus. And then Matthew 4.23, what is Jesus' message? 
It's the king and the kingdom. It's that God's king has arrived in Jesus and God's kingdom, the rule and reign of God is being established. So we come to Matthew 5 with what? The message of Jesus, large crowds made up of people who the world would never call blessed. And to them, Jesus preaches the Beatitudes. Now, if you've got, you know, detailed eyes, you would get at the beginning of Matthew 5, it talks about the disciples. And so as good, well-versed people in the Bible, it's easy for us to read the 12 into that. But don't do that because there is no 12 at this point, right? Matthew hasn't talked about the 12. He's talked about four. A few brothers are following Jesus, but he is not talking, he's not preaching the Beatitudes to simply the 12 at this point. The, the disciples talked about at the beginning of Matthew are all of those in the crowds who are following Jesus and listening to him as a teacher, being discipled by him. Okay, so why is that important? Well, the words of Jesus in the Beatitudes are revolutionary, radical, and subversive. And the best way to show you that is to tell you that Jesus Christ wasn't the first Jesus to preach the Beatitudes. What do I mean? Take a look at the screen. So on the screen, you're going to see the Beatitudes of someone called Jesus of Ben Sirah. Hopefully. No, keep going. All the way. There should be one that ends at the bottom with Jesus of Ben Sirah. There we go. Okay, so about 150 years before Jesus, there lived another Jesus. Obviously a very common name in the Jewish language, Yeshua, Joshua. And this was Jesus of Ben Sirah, Jesus' son of Sirah. And he was a very famous rabbi. And he preached. We still have a lot of his writings today. They're reserved in Jewish and Christian writings. And this was one of his most well-known pieces of teaching. And I want to read these to you because these are the Beatitudes that would have been in people's minds as Jesus proclaimed his first word, blessed. I can think of nine whom I would call blessed and a tenth whom my tongue proclaims. Blessed is the man who delights in his children and the one who lives to see the downfall of his enemies. Blessed is the one who lives with a sensible wife and the one who does not plow with ox and ass together. Blessed is the one who does not sin with the tongue and the one who does not serve an inferior. Blessed is the one who finds a friend and the one who speaks to an attentive audience. How great is the one who finds wisdom but without equal is the one who fears the Lord. So what does this conjure up for you? This is a sort of person who's just doing well in life, right? And some of these read like Proverbs, like the fear of the Lord. You know, the one who follows the way of the Lord. But there's other things in here that feel a little jarring for us. Like blessed is the one well, blessed is the man, first of all, so it's like gendered language, and a man who lives with a sensible wife and good kids, you know, the one who does not plow with ox and ass together, because no one wants to be that guy. And, <laughs> but, you know, it begins to move on to like, blessed is one who does not serve an inferior, right? This rabbi, Jesus of Ben Sarai, he's, right, he's speaking into a guilt and shame culture. 
where you would never stoop. You'd never stoop to an inferior, someone of a lower social class than you. Blessed is the one who speaks to an attentive audience. This is someone who listens, who people listen to. He has power and influence and authority. Blessed is not one who's a peacemaker, but blessed is one who lives to see the downfall of his enemies. This is someone who's just got his life together. He's got a good family, a good job, and people are listening to him. And everyone is looking at him and saying, you've got it going on. You never plow with your ox and ass together. But Jesus comes and says something really different. Jesus comes and he talks about a whole different type of person being blessed. And what we mustn't do is take the Beatitudes of Jesus and just find them and crowbar them into a way in which we baptize the very same people the world would look at and say, you've got it going on. Because there was a revolution in the words of Jesus. And he looked at those who the world would never call blessed, and he said, you are blessed. He gave dignity back to the people who the world would never call dignified. But how and why and what? What is the substance of Jesus saying this? Is it simply Jesus coming as finally a good and fair king who proclaims charity to the poor and the rich alike? Or is there something more? Ultimately, this is the question I think the Beatitudes pose to us. It's coming up on the screen. Is Jesus saying you are blessed in spite of your circumstances to the poor and the oppressed and the blind and the lame? Or is he saying that you are blessed because of your circumstances? Well, I think that Jesus... And the paradox and the revolution of the Beatitudes is that Jesus is saying to the poor and the oppressed, those crushed and broken by the world, you are blessed because of your circumstances, not simply in spite of them. Well, why? And how does that work? Well, what Jesus is about to do, what Jesus is about to call people to, is a radical reordering of everything about their lives. He is going to ask people to to change and think differently about everything, to think differently about the world and about money and about ambition and about sacrifice and about others, about the purpose of life, about the way to true happiness, about who really wins and what really matters in the world. And ultimately, he's going to challenge the very concept of what the good, blessed life really looks like. The Beatitudes are the gateway to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' manifesto of how you live as one of his people in the kingdom. And he's going to say some unbelievable things like turn the other cheek. Like love your enemy. Like go the extra mile for the Roman occupation forces that are oppressing you. Like don't store up treasures on earth, but store them up in heaven. Like forgive and do not judge. These are the words of Jesus and he is going to force people to change everything. The good news and the bad news for us is that ultimately Jesus only has one request. Everything. Everything. He has one thing. He asks for your very life. And so why are the crushed blessed? Why are the poor in spirit blessed? Why are those who mourn blessed? Why are the meek blessed? 
Well, it's way easier to grab hold of a new world when this world has left your hands empty. It's way easier to turn your back on this kingdom when it's given you nothing and grab hold of a new kingdom. And that is why Jesus says you are blessed because your hands are empty and they are ready to grab hold of something new. But the challenge for us is that the inverse is also true. The new way of life that Jesus is calling people into is going to be harder for those whom this world has put an awful lot in their hands. Philip Yancey, the famous and brilliant Christian author, puts it like this. He says, The Sermon on the Mount expresses quite plainly that God views this world with different lenses. One could almost subtitle the sermon, Survival of the Least Fit. Strength, good looks, connections, and the competitive instinct may bring a person's success in a society like ours, but those very qualities may block entrance to the kingdom of heaven. Dependence, sorrow, repentance. These are the steps to God's kingdom. Now, don't get it wrong. It isn't so much God's preferential option for the poor and the broken. It's the poor and the broken's preferential option for God. That's what Jesus is saying. And that's what we see through the whole life of Jesus, right? The rich young ruler who comes up to him. He never stoops. He has people who listen to him. Sure, he has a good and sensible wife. I'm sure he never has to plow with his ox and ass together. But he goes away sad. Because this kingdom has put too much in his hands to give it all up for Jesus. In Luke 14, Jesus tells a parable about the great wedding feast, which is the kingdom of God. And we're going to read a little bit of it now. It's going to come up on the screen. And so the message has gone out through the servant of the master of the house, and he's called everyone to come to the banquet. And this is the message that comes back. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just brought five oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I simply can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring who? The poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Who was in the crowd? Matthew 4.24. The oppressed, the demon-possessed, the blind, the cripple, and those who were ill with various diseases. You are blessed. You are blessed because you aren't the type of people who make excuses. You're the type of people who come to the great wedding feast of God. I um, was doing this puzzle with my daughter Thea the other day. And as I was doing that, I kind of realized that this is a little bit of what I think is going on. Because... As you can see here, you start with all your favorite characters from Frozen 2, Anna and Elsa and Sven and Olaf. 
And as you go through, they eventually get harder, right? So you start with 12 pieces, and then 16, and then 20, and then 24. And interestingly, as I watched Thea try and figure it out, you started with these puzzle pieces that were quite big, and there's only 12, and she could figure it out. And as she went through and through, you realize that the more you have, the harder it is to reorder the stuff in the right way. But then I realized what happens when you get to an adult puzzle, which is a thousand pieces. Right? It's pretty hard to reorder it when you've got all of this in your hands. And I think that is what Jesus is saying in this parable and in the Sermon on the Mount and in his blessings. Sometimes we can get so full that we let our busyness just block our blessing and we let our importance interrupt our invitation. Empty hands ready to take the kingdom. Yesterday, I decided, wouldn't it be fun to put on a meze platter for uh, our family? So we went to Waitrose. I got all this good stuff. I got you know hummus and good crisps and cheese, all the good stuff. And I got, I shelled out £3.60 for a, a thyme and rosemary focaccia. Right, it was delicious. And I'm, um, Hannah's playing with the kids, and I'm doing it all. I'm trying to do it quickly to get in there before Noah's nap. And so I put the focaccia, I think, oh, I'll heat it up. So I put it in the oven, and I'm doing everything. I'm cutting the cheese and making the plow, everything. Suddenly I notice this smell. And I open, no light, no ex exaggeration here. I open the oven, and this thing is an incendiary fireball. <laughs> when Waitrose said it was soaked in virgin olive oil, they were not lying, right? <laughs> this thing. And I'd like to tell you that at that moment, my instinct as a father was to protect my family and my home and to grab it and dive out of the house. The first thing that went through my head is, how do I save the focaccia? So I like gently pull it out of the oven and I use my amiglove and I like tapping it on the top, trying to save this. But there's a point of this story, right? <laughs> Competing desires. Sometimes we just get so busy so full, so much going on, good stuff, but we don't notice that something's on fire in the corner. And I think that is what Jesus is saying here. Blessed are those. Blessed are those. The world would never call you blessed, but a kingdom is coming, and you are going to be the people who grab hold of it, and so you are blessed. So what has this got to do with hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Well, Righteousness in Matthew has this complicated semantic range, and it talks about right relationship with God, it talks about right relationship with ourselves, it talks about right relationship with the land, and it talks about right relationships with other people. And so, you know, it's not a word that we use very often. Like, I don't go up to Peter and say, like, how are you doing? And he's like, pretty well. Everything's going quite righteously for me, right? It's not, we just don't have it in our vocabulary. It's not in our lexicon. And so what we do is we, like, push it out into Christian cliche. But what it simply means is basically right relationships. And an act of righteousness is something that we do to establish or maintain or guard right relationships, and so for the people of God following Jesus, what righteousness talks about is it's a people who live right before God in integrity and holiness and purity, and a people who strive and long for a world of justice and equality and right relationships in the world. And so what does Jesus say? He says, we are the people who must hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
Well, the first thing we mustn't do is we mustn't read our comparatively comfortable modern state into the words of Jesus here. When we use the word hunger and thirst, we use it hyperbolically, right? You know, it's like, I am so thirsty for a coffee. Or I'm like, I missed lunch and I'm starving. Or I got to church late and I didn't get a biscuit and I'm starving. You know who you are. Yeah? We use it like that. But who's Jesus talking to? Before the welfare state. Those that can't get jobs because they're blind and they're crippled and they're demon-possessed and they're lame. These aren't the people who talk about hunger and thirsting hyperbolically. These are people who knows what, know what it is to have that feeling deep inside of, I am starving. Starving. And so what is Jesus saying? He's saying, blessed are the people who feel like that for righteousness in the world. Blessed are the people who look out into the world, who read the news, who see broken relationships in their friends and family. And it is so jarring and painful to them. It's like a hunger and a thirst that will not go away. Blessed are you. Blessed are you when you feel about the world like that. Why? Because you feel about the world the way that God feels about the world. And the thing with hunger and thirst is you can't ignore it. It only grows. So Jesus comes to people and he says, hey, when you feel like that, when you are starving for justice in the world, you're blessed. Why are you blessed? Because God feels like you do and God is going to do something about it. And you will be filled because a kingdom is coming and has already arrived where everything, everything is going to be put right in the world. Who are the people who often feel the worst oppressed by broken relationships? Those at the bottom of the pecking order. And so blessed are you. Jesus doesn't come and say, blessed are you if you hunger and thirst for fame or comfort or money or any of those things. He says, blessed are you if you hunger and thirst for justice and righteousness in this world. Why? Because that is what God hunger and thirsts for. And God is going to do something about it. And one day everything will be put right and you will be filled the thing with hunger and thirst is you, you feel it when you don't have what you long for, right? You don't hold a drink on a hot day and say, I'm thirsty for a drink if you have one. The idea is that you don't have it. And so Jesus is saying, is that blessed are you when you don't feel the righteousness you long for in the world? Because one day you will. And so we are called to be people of a king and a kingdom, People of a king where we stand in holiness before God and a kingdom where everything is right in the world. I was um, reading some research by a group called Paraanalytics. And it got me thinking that we actually live in a culture that thirsts for unrighteousness. Paraanalytics, they track social media illegal downloads and streaming across all platforms. And they released this really interesting report where they said the fastest growing genre on streaming platforms today is documentary and the fastest growing subgenre is true crime. So what you're going to see on the screen now is a table that they made. And this is a list of true crime documentaries that have come out. Sorry, it's a little bit small, but to be honest, I don't want you to watch them, so that's fine. Um, 
And it's a list of true crime documentaries that have come out in the last three or four years and how long they spent within the top 10. Now, the slightly disturbing thing is that every single film, every single documentary on this list focus on either serial killers, rapists, or systemic abuses of power. And so what are Paratanalytics saying? They're saying the fastest growing entertainment today is true stories about people who have done some of the most unrighteous things we can imagine. And we live in a culture where we call that entertainment. And what does Jesus ask us to do? To hunger and thirst for a world that has been put right. To long for it. To crave and desire for it. And I'm not trying to say that any of us will do any of these awful things. But what I'm trying to say is that when we live in a culture where this becomes entertainment, it can set such a low bar on righteousness that we become numb to our appetites. This morning, literally this morning, I woke up and I flicked on BBC News and there was a report about Will Smith slapping Chris Rock. Do you remember that strange incident? And there was a line in that report that said this. The confrontation became a cultural lightning rod for conversation around America's appetite for casual violence. America's appetite for casual violence. Where has casual unrighteousness become palatable for me? Because I think what Jesus is saying is he wants us to move into a place where that sort of thing feels like sick in my mouth. Because I hunger and I thirst for righteousness. And so how do we do this? Like, how do we step into this? Well, interestingly, this is the season of Lent. Like, Lent is the time in the church calendar where through denying ourselves, we bring our appetites back into submission to the plans and desires and purposes of God. It's about giving up that we might create space create hunger and break free of some of the unhealthy or overinflated appetites in our lives. And I just want to end with a quote from John Piper from his actual brilliant book, Hunger for God, looking at prayer and fasting. And he says this, he says, Jesus said some people hear the word of God and a desire for God is awakened in their hearts. But then as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. In another place, he said, the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. The pleasures of life and the desires for other things, these are not evil in themselves. These are not vices. They are gifts of God. They are your basic meat and potatoes and coffee and gardening and reading and decorating and traveling and investing and TV watching and internet surfing and shopping and exercising and collecting and talking. And all of them can become deadly substitutes for God. The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the prime time dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it is a piece of land a yoke of oxen, and a wife. The greatest adversity to love of God is not his enemies, but his gifts. 
and, you know, classic John Piper doesn't pull any punches there. I was talking Hannah through some of my ideas, and I said, do you think it'll be good? And she was like, I think it might be, like, strangely encouraging. So that's the high bar that I'm going for here. But I think what John Piper is saying, and I think what Jesus is getting at, is we just get very full hands. And what Satan can love to do is to fill our hands and numb us to a desire to grab hold of the kingdom and hunger and thirst for God's kingdom to come in the world. And so if you are here and you feel crushed in areas of your life, the good news for you is that Jesus would come and he'd almost say congratulations because those very things will be the catalyst that drive you further into God. But for those of us who feel sort of self-important, full, busy, influential, Jesus would say, be on guard. Because those things can come and can so fill our hands that it's hard for us to grab hold of the new kingdom that's coming. And so I'm just going to invite the band up quickly. We're just going to go into one quick response. And I just want to ask you as you come in to close where might you by be sat in the dirt with your important five oxen giving excuses when the Lord of creation has invited you to a banquet because I think that is what Jesus is asking and I think there is only one prayer as I've been studying the Beatitudes there's one prayer that I keep coming back to and it's simply this Jesus, have it all. Jesus, have it all. What I feel stirring in this congregation, I feel so excited by, is there feels like there's a growing hunger for holiness, a desire for the fear of the Lord. Like I can feel it stirring week on week. I wasn't here for worship today, but last week, just this crying out, holy, holy, holy. I want to see you. And I feel like we're stepping into that. And I want to invite you today, and don't do it half-hearted, but put out your hands. And if you feel that stirring in your heart as we go into this song, I want to encourage you to pray those simple words. Jesus, have it all. Jesus, have it all. Would nothing shine in my eyes would nothing glitter more than Jesus. And in your grace, God, would you come? Spirit of God, would you come? Would you remind us all the places where we cry out when we hear the invitation, excuse me, excuse me. I'm sorry, I've got some land. I'm sorry, I've got some oxen. Sorry, my relationships. And we say no. And Lord, as we come into this season of Lent, would you streamline us? Would you call us deeper? Would you grow in us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness? Lord, forgive us for places where we've become numb where we've become apathetic or even entertained by the unrighteousness of the world. 
but would you give us a vision for your kingdom again, God? Would you stir in us a passion again, Lord Jesus? Jesus, would you have it all? Lord, let us not get so busy that it blocks our blessing. Let us not become so important that it blocks our invitation. And even now, God, would we pour up a table, pour up a chair to the table, to the great banquet that you have prepared for us. Amen.